Hello, I'm Llewellyn King, the host of White House Chronicle. Thank you for coming along today. This program is recorded under extraordinary weather conditions across the country, and it really is a wonderful time to look at the challenge we are facing with global warming. I am joined as often in the questioning by co-host Adam Clayton Powell III. Our guest today is Carl Hauskamp, Senior Fellow at the World Resources Institute. Carl, welcome to the broadcast. Uh, you have been at the front lines for a long time and are very revered and respected in the field. What is going on? Yes, I have many spear holes uh, from uh, battles in the legislature and the executive branch over energy policy and climate policy. And uh, we have come a long way in trying to address climate change. Sadly, I think the progress has been far too slow, but we are now on the cusp of perhaps really uh, moving forward more quickly on the transition to clean energy sources uh, with the passage of recent legislation and the, the, the actions of the Biden administration. Adam, you say that uh, clean electricity, 100% clean electricity, is different from 100% renewables, correct? That's true. It's a very important distinction. Could you explain? Yeah, sure. Um, the, the One of the linchpins of solving the, solving the climate uh, problem is to electrify as many end uses in the economy as possible, and then to switch over to totally zero carbon electricity sources or near zero carbon electricity sources. And for many years, some advocates have said, let's do that all with renewable sources, primarily solar and wind. Uh, but uh, it would be very difficult in terms of both reliability and affordability to switch over to a 100% renewable grid. However, uh, if we instead aim for a 100% clean grid and incorporate some uh, energy sources with carbon capture to produce electricity, whether it's biomass or fossil fuels, some nuclear, and some other sources that perhaps we haven't even invented yet, we can reach 100% uh, zero carbon electricity uh, in an affordable and reliable manner. You have this approach that uh, there are solutions that we simply have to mobilize to take advantage of them. Are we in the process of a mobilization, a, a, a great national effort to actually tackle this problem before it is too late? Yes, and yes, indeed it is. Between wildfires and heat domes, uh, intense precipitation events, we are experiencing climate change now. It is no longer some kind of distant threat. Uh, I think you're correct in saying that a lot of the solution is deploying uh, technologies that are already developed and, pra and practices. We still need to continue uh, research and development on a few key things uh, moving forward to get to a completely zero carbon economy. But the great news is the cost of solar has come down dramatically, roughly 90% over the last decade. The cost of onshore wind has come down dramatically, I think over 50% over the last decade. We're beginning to uh, develop cheaper and cheaper batteries, which is not only gonna help uh, the power sector, but also help power our transportation. Uh, so all that is good news, but we still have some important R&D tasks ahead 
to fully commercialize things like long duration electricity storage, uh, a new generation of safer and uh, less expensive nuclear power plants, and also to scale up the use of carbon capture in various ways, both in industry and power, and actually carbon capture taking CO2 directly out of the atmosphere. All those are not fully commercial right now and require us to really uh, pursue uh, a intelligent R&D strategy. With the, with the major pieces of legislation that have been put in place the last couple of years, we have a shot at really doing that transition. You have the uh, bipartisan infrastructure law that put pieces in place. You have the Chips and Science uh, Act of 2022. And then of course the Inflation Reduction Act of 2022 which was the really big push of incentives and other policy changes to jumpstart uh, the, uh, the clean energy transition. Carl, you just mentioned the N-word, nuclear. Uh, the, you take one example, France, it's pretty good for, for decisions it made decades ago to use a lot of nuclear energy for electricity production. That's still pretty controversial in some circles. Yes, you're, you're absolutely right. There's some, some elements of the environmental community and among, among some climate activists, uh, there is still a very strong opposition to nuclear power. Uh, however, uh, there's also a, a growing recognition among uh, many policymakers and a growing uh, section of the environmental community that it, that it needs to play a part that you need that clean, firm, zero carbon electricity in some quantities to complement what will probably be a heavy solar and wind grid. And the evidence of this we see uh, when, when you look at say the G20 countries uh, responsible for the lion's share of emissions across the globe. Uh, at my last count, about 14 of those G20 countries were maintaining and or expanding their nuclear generation. Uh, we've also seen an uptick in the interest in nuclear generation in the wake of the Ukraine invasion. Uh, more countries are realizing that uh, energy security needs to be given more weight and that uh, domestic nuclear generation could be part of enhancing energy security. Paul, I'd like to clarify for our viewers and listeners some of the terms. Uh, renewables, we mostly talk about what we mean is wind uh, for turbines, which we see windmills everywhere now, and solar, uh, which is uh, largely what we notice on rooftops, but increasingly spread across fields. Uh, what are the other terms that people should know? Carbon capture and mm -hmm. sometimes carbon capture and storage. How is that done? Yeah. Very, very good clarifying question. Uh, first, on, on the renewables, uh, you're right. Mostly we think about solar and wind, which have been growing globally uh, tremendously and are helping us move toward lower emissions. Um, the other major forms of renewable electricity are, of course, hydropower, which we've had for many decades, and is probably capable of some further expansion globally although in industrialized countries, most of the, the sites have been already uh, tapped. So major growth in hydro is, not, uh, uh, is, is probably not in the cards. Uh, there is another form of uh, renewable electricity, uh, geothermal, tapping into 
uh, the natural heat of the earth and boiling water, spinning turbines. And that actually is poised possibly to grow to a more significant source as we are able to drill deeper and also apply horizontal drilling technologies to expand that source. Uh, however, the big ones that can expand rapidly are solar and wind, uh, both onshore and offshore, and they can be very inexpensive uh, at one level, but as you know, they are also intermittent sources. Uh, wind doesn't blow, the sun doesn't shine. Uh, the percentage of time they can really operate might be 40, 30, or even just 20% of the time uh, with solar. So the, the trick is to use those to the great extent we can, but integrate them with uh, sources that are not intermittent and blend them in an intelligent way. On carbon capture, this also uh, re requires a little bit of nuance of understanding. Uh, we can conceive of capturing uh, CO2 from power plants and industrial sources before it gets into the atmosphere. We can compress it and we can inject it into secure geologic formations. Uh, this is a way in which we can continue to use some fossil fuels without emitting CO2. Again, it's controversial in some circles, but in most mainstream now analytic circles and uh, what governments are planning to do, there is a role for carbon capture and storage, CCS. The other thing I mentioned is there's also uh, a, a increasingly ways to pull carbon dioxide out of the air after it's been emitted. This is another important tool in the toolbox, and we can go into it in, in more depth if you wish, but to some extent, we are later in this century, we're gonna have to be pulling out significant quantities of CO2 back out of the air, storing it underground or in forests or in soils to reduce the warming effect of that CO2. Can we talk about politics for a minute? Uh, there's a slide that you've used, which points out that for 20 years, uh, many of these bills died in the Senate. Uh, how, do, how do you get around that? Uh, you also say that there should be more ambiguity in some of these uh, some of the proposed legislation. This issue, of course, really rose to the fore in the 80s and then the early 90s. And beginning the 1990s, Democratic parent, uh, presidents and Democratic uh, legislatures attempted to enact strong climate policies. Uh, often those, those efforts uh, would pass the House, but then would die in the Senate, of course, because of the different uh, political composition uh, of the Senate. Uh, what's interesting to note in this last flurry of, of legislation, uh, President Biden and the Democrats were able to enact two laws that I mentioned, the Infrastructure Law and the Chips and Science Act, with some bipartisan support, and they got them through the Senate. And that's very encouraging that that, that kind of action is still possible. However, the very aggressive climate uh, incentives of the IRA required President Biden and the Democrats to use the budget reconciliation process to uh, pass that with their slim majority in the House uh, in 2022 and uh, to uh, pass it with their slim control uh, of, the, of the Senate uh, uh, and not, not having to reach the, the 60 vote uh, threshold uh, to, to be to filibuster. So, and getting back to one of your earlier questions, we are making steps forward, but it's, it's also, I'm very sad to observe that this issue is still very polarized uh, in the country. 
And uh, to make progress in the decades ahead, uh, we're going to have to build more bipartisan support uh, at the at the national level and in, in many states uh, to move forward with the policies we need. Well, so far our conversation has touched only on things that affect electric utilities. Uh, we haven't talked, which are about one third of the pollution, I believe. Uh, we haven't talked about the other sources and what we do about them. One way I like to think about this is, is that to move to a zero carbon economy, we have four basic tasks. First, we need to be as efficient as possible in all of our energy use. And that means tightening up our homes, our commercial buildings, our industries. The second uh, big task, as I mentioned earlier, is to electrify as many end uses as possible. And again, we're beginning to see that. In our homes, we can cook, we can dry our clothes, we can heat our water, we can heat our homes and buildings with heat pumps uh, and move away from the use of natural gas and fuel oil. In transportation, we're already seeing electric cars take off. Uh, we're also seeing uh, electric batteries begin to drive uh, our medium duty trucks and our buses. That electrification can make further inroads there. And then finally, in industry, there are many heat applications in industry where we could substitute the use of electricity for the burning of fossil fuels. So that electrification is key and moves across buildings, transportation, and industry. Of course, the more you, you electrify, the more pressure you put on the electric utilities. Absolutely. Yes, and that's why it's so important to gear up for a major expansion of electricity generation and shift it to zero carbon power. That's that linchpin task that, that I described earlier. So that's the third big key. And the fourth key is deploying carbon capture where we need it, where we're still burning uh, some fuel and in industry, try to capture the emissions. If we have to burn some natural gas to balance the intermittency of solar and wind, we can put carbon capture technology on that. And then ultimately, to the extent that we overshoot a safe temperature level, or we have to balance out some of the non-CO2 gases that are we still emit, we need to pull some CO2 out of the air through both natural means and technological means. Those are the four big tasks ahead. China is building new coal-fired power plants. Uh, two airlines in India just bought a thousand new commercial passenger jets to deal with to address the growing demand for travel there. So isn't that going to outweigh anything that we can do? It's an unprecedented task for human beings to cooperate across all countries, to cooperate across 8 billion plus people to address this sort of mother of all environmental problems. Uh, the good news there is that, uh, as I said, first of all, uh, we need cooperation, not among 190 countries intensely, but there's really about 20 or 30 countries that are responsible for the lion's share of emissions. And over the last 30 years, uh, the US, uh, Europe, Japan, the industrialized countries have been trying to work with countries like China and India, which are uh, big emitters now also as their economies have grown, to try to do technology sharing and to put in place uh, elements of uh, the climate treaty that can slow the growth of emissions globally. Even if the U.S., and sort of to your point, even the, 
the U.S. were to magically reduce its emissions to zero tomorrow, would that solve the problem? No. But you can also say the same thing about China or Europe or Japan or India. No country alone can solve this problem. It requires uh, unprecedented degrees of collaboration and also uh, countries increasingly seeing it in their own interest uh, to limit global warming. And in that case, I think countries like China and India really understand that now in a way that they didn't in the early 1990s. They are also seeing the impacts and see their self-interest. What holds us back here? What about the incredible phenomenon called not in my backyard, <laughs> NIMBY? Also Indeed. in Britain, I must give you this to you because it's quite amusing. They have a different acronym, which is DADA, Decide, Announce, Defend, Abandon. And <laughs> yeah. uh, I thought I'd share that with you. But uh, what? how much of a problem is NIMBYism in bringing about the results we desire? Uh, there's a, um, a wonder, wonderful quote by uh, Senator Schatz of Hawaii from uh, last year, I believe, in which he said that uh, the environmental movement was was built on the idea of blocking things back, back in the 70s, blocking uh, new energy projects, new industrial projects, new this, new that. He says there needs to be a really different mindset take, take place where we need to aggressively build out a lot of clean energy infrastructure requires almost a you know a whole different mindset. We're going to need to expand our transmission system. Some people don't like transmission lines. We're going to build need to build a lot more solar. And sometimes that goes in uh people are companies are buying up uh or negotiating with farmers to put uh big solar farms uh in say the Midwest. Sometimes there's opposition. Uh on off the east coast of the United States there are plans to build offshore windmills. Uh, there's a lot of opposition uh, among towns along the coast. Uh, so all all these are, you know, we, we have to understand that often, you know, people do want to protect their view in their backyard or, or are afraid of certain impacts. But collectively, we have to find a way to build a lot more clean energy infrastructure. Otherwise, climate change is going to destroy uh, everything that we hold dear. Sometimes you're talking about things also that increase the cost of living for people. Uh, uh, the cost of heating your home might go up. Uh, electric cars cost more than uh, internal combustion engines for now. Uh, how how do you persuade, how do you address uh, that issue? Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's been a real conundrum uh, for years. And I think it's, uh, it's, it's almost, uh, uh, it, it, it's worth noting that for, for a couple of decades, uh, the economics profession has said, the solution to this is just tax carbon, tax carbon, tax carbon, uh, which of course raises the, the price of fossil fuels. And at least in the, the short one would uh, raise various, the cost of various uh, services and, and products. Uh, so it's interesting that the Biden administration uh, and the, the Democrats over the last couple of years have taken a different approach where they have said we need to kickstart and launch uh, and expand new industries, and we're going to use tax incentives to bring the costs down to parity uh, with fossil fuels. And there was a very careful design process uh, over the last couple of years 
the level of incentives in the Inflation Reduction Act uh, to try to bring the uh, uh, the after-tax cost of the substitutes for fossil fuels in line. Uh, so that's going to help us uh, move forward. And there's also a, uh, a sort of a public education piece of this too, that an electric car right now might cost more in terms of initial purchase price, but it's operating and maintenance costs over the lifetime of that car are gonna be lower than a gasoline powered car. Uh, and similarly, uh, we can, in many parts of the country, uh, an electric heat pump can actually be less costly than heating your home with natural gas. Uh, but again, uh, the we need we need to find substitutes for fossil fuels and fossil fuel emissions that stay within people's uh, comfort zone. Otherwise, we will probably face some backlash. And we we tend to lump together fossil fuels as though they're a, a whole, but they're not. There's coal, there's oil, and there's natural gas. And the utilities tell me in my conversations with them, which are fairly frequent, that they cannot get from here to 2050 without natural gas in order to stabilize their systems because of the instability of wind and solar, predictably. Uh, they cannot be relied upon to be available at all times. Um, <clears throat> natural gas burns, depending on the analysis, 60 to, <clears throat> to uh, better, uh, cleaner than coal. Um, what should we do about natural gas? There's a lot of alarm that we might ban it prematurely or we may make it too difficult. There's a new proposal, new proposed rules out of the Environmental Protection Agency that would severely limit at least the growth in the gas potential at a time when utilities are closing down coal plants and building natural gas plants because not only are they less polluting, but the number of pollutants is much smaller. Uh, what do we do about natural gas? Mm -hmm. Yeah, this is, a, again, a, uh, an area of, of uh, dispute among uh, some climate hawks, and uh, people will run different models and different analysis. Some may say that we, we need to reduce natural gas uh, very sharply, uh, say, over the next 10 years, or we should be globally developing no new natural gas fields. Um, uh, on the other hand, uh, you have, uh, when you look at say the modeling uh, of the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change, the uh, report that they just put out over the last couple of years, you will see that uh, in scenarios that limit warming to say 1.5 or two degrees, your natural gas use over the next 30 years doesn't go to zero, but is cut maybe in half. Uh, as 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 a transition fuel, as you described, Llewellyn. Um, uh, in contrast, because coal is much more carbon intensive, uh, the use of uh, coal over the next 30 years probably has to drop much more dramatically, maybe a 90% drop uh, over, over current levels. In my personal view, natural gas is a very important transition fuel over the next 30 years. Its total use has to go down uh, but uh, trying to take it to zero rapidly, again, uh, will probably backfire on our efforts to deliver energy to people who have very little energy access right now, as well as keeping affordability of energy in line with uh, what, what people can accept.
Doug Burgum, the uh, governor of North Dakota, a big energy producing state, he likes to say that uh, America produces the cleanest energy of any country in the world. True? Hmm. Um, I, there's probably several definitions of, you know, who, who is cleanest. Uh, we certainly uh, produce abundant natural gas. Uh, nuclear power produces about 20% of our total electricity uh, generation. But we certainly burn a lot of oil. We burn uh, a lot of coal. Uh, our per capita emissions, which are, of course are driven by fossil fuels, are still among the highest in the world. So again, uh, what, what I would like to focus on instead is not, not sort of a numbers game or a metrics game, but just the U.S. can and should lead the technological revolution to cleaner energy sources. And we are. We're developing... Uh, you know, we're developing cheaper and cheaper solar and wind. We're on the cutting edge of developing uh, battery technology, and we're on the cutting edge of developing uh, fossil generation, uh, gas generation with carbon capture uh, by developing applications like the alum cycle, which can capture 100% of CO2 emissions, and also developing the next generation of safer, cheaper nuclear power plants. So we are a leader and we should continue to be a leader. Don Hall, the uh, former chief technology officer of Chevron now teaches about uh, energy. And he likes to say, we need all of the above, that nothing should be off the table. That sounds similar to, uh, I think he used the phrase, put your chips across the table. <laughs> yes, I'm a big believer in spreading our chips across multiple technologies. Uh, of all the different zero carbon energy sources that are already commercial or that are in the lab or trying to move out to full commercialization, some of them may hit technological obstacles. Some of them may hit economic obstacles. Some of them may hit political obstacles. We're not sure. We hope that we can expand wind both onshore and offshore, but we don't know how much we can expand it uh, before people uh, push back. We don't know how much of that bigger transmission system we can build uh, uh, but without uh, some public opposition stopping it. We don't know if people will accept the new generation of nuclear power plants. So any of these might hit an obstacle. So right now we need to keep everything on the table and move forward toward commercialization of all these because we were probably going to need a lot of them. Um, we are running out of time on climate change, and we're definitely running out of time on this program. I thank you, Carl Husker, so much for coming on the broadcast, and of course, Adam Powell, Adam Clayton Powell III, for joining me. Uh, until next week, it's hot outside, so I'm here to do this if it comes on. And, yeah, there you are. Thank you. Cheers. See you all next week, and try to stay cool. White House Chronicle is available as a podcast on Apple, Spotify, Stitcher, wherever you listen, we are there.